We live in a culture which does not believe in absolute truth, yet the Christian faith tenaciously needs to hold to the absolute conviction there is absolute truth so that we can believe in faith in the one he called Jesus. What is absolute truth? This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Today, we begin a brand new series of messages we're calling Sleuth. This series will answer critical questions about the Bible, the church, and the Christian faith. Today, David begins in the first chapter of the Gospel of John in a message simply called Absolute Truth. Glad that you're here. That We're beginning a new series called Sleuth, which is looking at some of the questions that are often directed toward the Christian faith, and we want to be able to answer them intelligently. If you are a follower of Jesus, hopefully I can give you some things that can answer questions as you're asked them in the world. For Colossians 1.29 says that the purpose of the minister is to equip the church as mature disciples unto Jesus, not to grow a large church, not to big, grow a big church, uh, but to make people mature unto Christ. We're going to look today at the question of absolute truth. Uh, we live in a culture which does not believe in absolute truth. It's taught by the intelligentsia and the academic community that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Yet the Christian faith tenaciously for the past 2,000 years, but ever so more now, needs to hold to the absolute conviction there is absolute truth. It's not only revealed in God's word, but also so that we can believe in faith, not only in God, but in the one he called Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. So let's look at the scripture as we begin to address this subject of is there such a thing as absolute truth, and then we'll get into our study today to be able to answer some of the questions that have been brought our way. I want to look with you at several verses from the Gospel of John, specifically from the mouth of Jesus, where he claimed ultimate truth. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word for word is logos in the Greek. It's the word from which we get logic which implies logical truth, logical progression of truth. So, in the beginning was logic, and the Word was logic with God, and the logic was God himself. John 8, 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, Philip, who'd ask him some questions, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not a way, not a truth, not a life, but the way, the truth, the life. Exclusivity was claimed. John 16, 13, Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Then in John 18, through 39, Jesus before Pilate, before his crucifixion, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? 
Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Why did God become a human being? Jesus said at least one of the reasons was to bear witness to absolute truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Pontius Pilate is the patron saint of American postmodernism, the lack of belief in ultimate truth. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Let me give you a, a brief history of how we in our contemporary culture landed at this spot of not believing in absolute truth. You need to really go back to Greco-Roman days. In the second century BC, there was a Roman philosopher by the name of Lucretius, and, and he had warned Finn of all of the different interpretations of the anger and wrath of the gods, plural, toward the Romans. And he thought the Romans needed to be free of this, so he came up with an idea that everybody could believe whatever they wanted to. They could worship whatever god they wanted to. If they wanted a different god whom they could worship, they just designed that god and made him a part of their pantheon of gods. And that philosophy was slowly but surely developed and adopted by other Roman philosophers and became, by the time of Jesus, the thought of the day. That's why Pilate shrugged his shoulders and said, what's truth? He was merely echoing what had been brought up by Lucretius for a couple of centuries. Then the Christian church was established, and from Jesus' birth death, resurrection, and ascension, the church is formed for the next 400 years, especially when Constantine in 313 AD declared the church to be the official religion of the Roman Empire, everything changed. Uh, people started adopting natural, obvious, objective truth as a part of their lives, especially revealed in Jesus Christ. Then you move into the Middle Ages, and the church's great thinkers, theologians, philosophers all adhered to natural truth. They all adhered to objective, rational truth. And the way they said you can know it does exist is by looking at nature, by, by looking at natural law, by looking at design. That held the day. But something, for, for many years, but something happened around the 13th and 14th century that began to change people's hearts towards acceptance of natural law and objective truth simply through the church. It was the religious wars. Christians killing Christians. The Crusades. When Christians started forcing Jews to convert to Christianity or either having to pay a huge tax or lose their lives, no kidding, that happened. Christians did that. It didn't start with ISIS. 
different thinkers began to say, you know what, there must be a better way of understanding truth, not through natural law and religion, but through science. So in the 15th, 16th, 17th century, a new way of thinking arose. No longer was it natural law giving us an understanding of objective truth. It now is science. And you have the greatest thinkers of the world saying if it can be proven under a microscope, we can believe it, thus distancing themselves from the religious wars and all the religious conflict of the past years. Probably the most prominent thinker of the Enlightenment or rational period is Charles Darwin as he tried to define life in a series of evolutions which has greatly impacted how we view life today. Ultimately, that thought in Europe of Enlightenment thinking crossed the ocean, became a part of our way of life. So as we moved into the 20th century, many people had high hopes that science could solve all of our problems. They believed that humanity and their natural desire to be good and with science backing them up could allow all of the evils of the world to be destroyed. And there were several things that completely destroyed that way of thinking. First of all, World War I, the mother of all wars. Then the Great Depression that caused an employment of 30 to 40% worldwide. You think we've got it bad today. Then World War II and the atomic bomb, and then the Korean conflict, and then you move into the 60s and the racial conflicts that existed. More and more you started hearing people say, humanity needs to be autonomous and free from anything that oppresses it. And that began in the 60s and 70s, a new understanding, not of modernism, truth being based on science, but postmodernism, which believes there's no absolute truth. That's what's been taught in our universities in America today. It's what you and I have been taught. It's what our children are being taught. It's what our grandchildren are being taught. There's no absolute truth at all. In fact, here are some of the phrases that exist in academia and among the intelligentsia regarding absolute truth. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Truth is whatever you sincerely believe. What's true for you may not be true for me. But if it's true for me, it's true for me. We have this kind of dangerous dogmatic drivel and this kind of fallacious futility being taught to our children. And amazingly, we're paying tens of thousands of dollars for them to hear it. Postmodernism or the fact that truth is relative has become the quote of the day. Pushing those of us who call ourselves Christ followers and committed to this book as being anachronistic dinosaurs, obscuritists from a bygone day. So who's right? Is truth relative or is truth objective? How do we begin to approach 2015 and the years beyond? Oh, by the way, in case you don't know, there's a museum in England that has a display of postmodernism. And at the bottom of it is written these words, postmodernism is dead. Which begs the question, to where are we headed? And you know what? No one knows.
I'll give you my best guess. If postmodernism is dying, and I think it is on life support, gasping, the only place to where it can go is nihilism, nothingness. And that will lead to, read the book of Ecclesiastes, which is probably the most profound work that describes contemporary American thought, where basically the purpose of life is to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I may die. Self-fulfillment and personal comfort will become the deities of the day. And that's what people will most seek after. And my great fear and angst regarding that particular way of thought, it can only lead to the last verse in the book of Judges describing Israel's darkest days. It says, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's where our culture is headed unless we can reclaim the belief in absolute truth. That's my purpose with you today. Now, here are the objections of those who are postmodern who talk to me and you about absolute truth. First of all, they say, you people are arrogant. You're arrogant. You're self-righteous. You think you've got all the truth. Secondly, your arrogance leads to division. You divide. You cause people to choose whatever they want to believe in, and then they arrogantly are separated from other people whom they should love. And finally, third, not only are you arrogant and divisive, you're abusive. Because here's what's happened historically. You see it in the religious wars centuries ago. You Christians who have absolute truth, you get together and you demand that everybody else believe like you do, and if they don't, you oppress them. The example of that, slavery. You oppress people because you think you've got the truth that your Bible has revealed. And it's not just you Christians, it's other religious people who come together in their understanding of the truth in their religion. Look at ISIS. Look what they're doing. They're butchering people, beheading people, maybe even children in the name of their God. In fact, let's not even make it just religious. It's also social. That's what communism has done behind a belief in absolute truth that the masses are being persecuted. They should rebel against the totalitarian government. They should take over. And that belief system in the 20th century caused over 100 million deaths through Hitler, Stalin, Lenin, Pol Pot, and other dictators. You people who think you've got absolute truth, you come together in community, in communism, and you think you've got the answer, and you oppress people. Moreover, the objection lies. This whole idea of a meta-narrative is silly. It's oppressive and abusive within itself. Now, let me pause a second. Some of you are asking the question, what in the world's a meta-narrative? It is key to an understanding of postmodern objections to absolute truth. Meta-narrative means there's a huge story going on in the universe. At the heart of the Christian faith is the meta-narrative that the Bible is teaching us history, his story, God's story as he's dealing with humanity. Here's how the meta-narrative goes. <clears throat> in Genesis 1 and 2, God created the heavens and the earth. He created this world good in every possible way. It was operating the way God wanted it to, to operate, Genesis 1 and 2. Then there was a fall 
a rebellion against God that invited evil into all of this created order. And the world does not operate the way God wants it to operate. So God begins a story of redeeming humanity back to Genesis 1 and 2. How he does that story is by calling a man named Abraham in Genesis 12 and forming a nation called Israel. And that nation of Israel is, story is told in Genesis 12 through Malachi. And in that story, God is constantly working with his people, redeeming his people, trying to move them back toward himself. They sometimes object. They sometimes move toward him. They sometimes rebel against him. Sometimes they submit to him. But it is their story through the whole Old Testament until the end of Malachi. And here's what you're supposed to do is to find your story in his story. Because all of us have that same story, don't we? Days we've moved toward God in redemption and then moved away from God, stiff-arming him, and he always pursues us, and we get back and forth in that relationship with him. That's the story, the meta-narrative of the Old Testament. But then God sent his son, Jesus, into the world, the perfect God-man, and he lived the perfect life we could not live. He died on the cross, taking the wrath of God that we deserve upon himself because of our rebellion. And then he gives us, by grace through faith, the forgiveness of our sins something we don't deserve. And in that meta-narrative, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, we see the story of Jesus. Then in the book of Acts, we see the formation of the church. Then the rest of the Bible is all about the church of Jesus being formed, and Paul and John and Peter writing to the church, telling them how they needed to repent or how they needed to grow in the love of Jesus. And then finally, the book of Revelation says that one day, oh yes, one day, in the meta-narrative, the grand story of God, God is going to look at history and come back in Jesus again. And when he comes back again, he will restore this world to Genesis 1 and 2 to create an order as God intended. Don't misunderstand for a moment, folks. The second coming of Jesus is essential to the meta-narrative of the Bible. And he will come back again. He will restore creation to its original intent. You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Thanks for listening. Coming up, David joins me in the studio in a conversation about becoming a fan of Christ. We'll be right back. In our community, there are countless people at the intersection of homelessness and addiction. Hi, I'm Tony Marciano, President and CEO of Charlotte Rescue Mission, and for over 80 years, the Rescue Mission has been helping people who struggle with addiction in our community. You know, there are many great programs that offer people struggling with addiction a path to sobriety and recovery. But what comes after someone gets clean? Often those battling addiction have an inconsistent work history or criminal charges. Most have stunted emotional growth. And after they've achieved sobriety, how do they maintain long-term employment? This is where Community Matters Cafe makes a huge impact in their lives. Community Matters Cafe is more than just good food and wonderful house-roasted coffee. It's an extension program of Charlotte Rescue Mission that is transforming lives. And after men and women graduate from Charlotte Rescue Mission's 120-day Rebound Men's and Dove's Nest Women's Residential Programs, they have the option to enroll in the Life Skills Program at Community Matters Cafe. During the six-month program, the students learn a variety of critical life skills in a restaurant setting that help them get and keep long-term employment. Community Matters Cafe is located diagonally opposite the Panther Practice Fields at the corner of Cedar and West First Street. Charlotte Rescue Mission is so grateful for the financial partnership of Moments of Hope Church 
in this vital work of transforming lives. I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thanks so much for being with us today. It's great being with you, Jen. Well, in this morning's Moment of Hope, you wrote about being a fan for Christ. What do you mean by that? Well, okay, it's the height of football season right now, okay? Mm -hmm. Whether it's college or professional, or let's go even down to the high school or middle school level, especially if you have one of your kids playing (laughs) in that game. Well, there's so much pomp and ceremony, and the people in the stands some have painted their faces and they're wearing their team's jersey and they're cheering wildly and screaming loudly for their team to win. And we call those people fans. Well, interestingly, the word fan is a shortened version of the word fanatic. And when you think about someone being a fanatic, sometimes that's not altogether good. But when you take it into the terms of sports arena, you think fan slash fanatic, that's proper and okay. And my point today is simply this. Would it not be okay to be a fan for Jesus, Hmm. to be a fanatic even for Jesus? Now, I know that can cross over boundaries where people become reprehensibly arrogant and awfully difficult to be around. But on the other hand, we really do want people excited for Jesus. We want people passionate for Jesus. Mm -hmm. Uh, We want people like on Sunday, people desiring to go to the Carolina Panthers football game, just can't wait to get there, tailgate, have fun, be with other people. We'd love for that same kind of excitement in the church I pastor, Moments of Hope Church, to be there every Sunday for the believers who love Jesus. They just can't wait to get there, be together, have fellowship together. But we somehow think that the word fanatic can't be translated into the Christian arena And I'd like to challenge that today and say, no, you really can be. You can be excited and passionate for Jesus. Because here's the truth of the moment of hope I tried to get across today. It's easier to calm down a fanatic than to raise somebody from the dead. Hmm. Let me say that again. It's easier to calm down a fanatic than to raise somebody from the dead. If somebody's dead, they're not going to be excited about anything. And there are too many dead Christians in the world. They're not excited about anything of the Lord. But people who really love Jesus are excited, passionate about coming together, worshiping, but mostly going and giving their lives away. My point today is it's okay to be a fanatic for (laughs) Jesus, a fan for Jesus, even more so than you'd be a fanatic for your favorite sports team. I love this so much, and it reminds me of a period in my life where I was really kind of what you would call on fire and just really kind of radical in my my faith. And I remember watching that movie, The Passion for Christ, and it just, everything became real. My mm. love for Jesus, my recognition of what he paid. And I just remember feeling like every cell in my body was just alive. And my father-in-law ended up coming over to our house and wanted to talk shop with my husband. And all I wanted to talk about was Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I was just, Mm -hmm. I felt like a fanatic. And I just excused myself and went to the other room and just prayed because Mm. I didn't know what to do with this. (laughs) Right. No, but that's what happens when you have this wonderful experience with Jesus. And it's rooted in knowing what he did for us. Yeah. As you look at the movie, The Passion of the Christ, and you see that's the pain through which he went to redeem us and bring us home to him and give us the gift of eternal life. Mm-hmm. Well, you're never the same when that happens. Yeah. You can't help but be a fan for 
Jesus. It's so true. It's so true. Well, thank you so much for these encouraging words today, David. Yeah, and everyone, please give your life to Jesus and passionately pursue him and be a fan for him. And if you'd like to receive these daily written Moments of Hope from me, go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe there. Every morning, there will be one arriving in your inbox at 7 a.m. from my heart to yours, free of charge to help your day begin with a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. We would love to have you join us for worship this Sunday morning. We meet at Providence Day School, located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte at 10 a.m. You can find more information on our website, momentsofhopechurch.org. Again, come join us Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at Providence Day School, located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte. Our web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston, hoping you have a great weekend.